In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome to Moving Forward. I am your host today, Krista Nepper, and I'd like you to give me join me in welcoming Maya Skupak Arteaga. She is going to be talking to us today about her passions. And Maya, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your day job, what you do on the outside level, what you would say to somebody on the subway, and then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the inside, if you will. (laughs) Sure. So I feel really fortunate that I get to work in a field that I'm very passionate about. It's the anti-human trafficking field. So if I was on a subway... Uh, and someone wanted to ask me what I do, which is probably very possible since I live in D.C., and that's sort of the question that people ask each other here. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I would say that I work for an anti-human trafficking organization called Thorn, which focuses on creating and developing innovative technology solutions to fight the sexual exploitation of children. Wow. So that's... um. That's a big job. That's a very important job. It's very heavy. Tell me, first of all, how did you find yourself in that line of work? Is there a passion or something that you did as a child that led up to what you're doing today? Well, the way that I became very, the way that I first found out about human trafficking or child sex trafficking in particular was a very personal discovery for me. I, um, I knew someone who had been trafficked as a child. Her stepdad had sold her for sex. And when she first told me this, it really shocked me. And at this point in my life, I was really young. I was about 17 years old and still kind of figuring myself out. Still am to to this day, but more so obviously back then. And I was looking for, and I think just the, the way that I was raised to really look at the community, to really look at humanity When she told me this happened to her, it really broke my heart in large part, not just because it's inhumane and this is a a huge human rights abuse, but because it was someone that I knew and I loved so much and I couldn't believe that this happened to her. And so when she told me this, it opened up my eyes. And of course, by this point, I was getting into college. Um, I attended a community college at this point and I dove into this issue and I ended up connecting with a lot of people in the on campus and in the community. And I organized a violence against women awareness event on campus. And I had invited her to speak, to share her story about human trafficking. And I had a district attorney there and an advocate there to talk about the various, various aspects of this issue. And it just really opened up my eyes because the response from the audience was huge. I had just found out about this issue and I wanted to share this issue with other people because I felt like it didn't receive enough attention. And so receiving such a great response from the community made me realize that this is something that I wanted to dedicate my life to because people needed to know that this was happening. I didn't want more people like my friend being silenced, feeling like she didn't have a place to go. And so if more people knew about it, they could do something about it. And so that really began my discovery and my passion into pursuing this as a, a life career. That's so bold. I cannot commend you enough because it's such important work. But I know from personal experience, it's such heavy work. When I went to law school, I was very interested in working with victims of domestic violence um, and and doing work with the VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act at the time. But 
I would come home and I would just cry all day. And even older, and I was thinking I was more mature, I attempted to do some volunteer work with human trafficking. And I went to an American Bar Association conference, and I came home, and I shared this with you earlier, I cried the entire weekend. I really didn't have the ability to separate what I was seeing from my own personal emotions. So can you speak to us about that? Because it just... I. Commend you so much for being able to do that. And how do you separate yourself from the heavy heaviness of this work? Well, I think you're absolutely right. There is that level of vicarious trauma that a lot of practitioners experience when they're working so closely with very difficult issues in general, and and especially one on face to face with with clients. And at this point in my career, I, I'm not working directly with clients, but I had at one point because I wanted to figure out how close I could get to this issue, and just to kind of give you sort of a little bit more of a paint the picture a little bit more of the way that I've been able to continue to work in this field and, and stay motivated because a lot of people do experience burnout. Um, even though they care so much about this issue is, you know, I started out, um, and I was very fortunate to become a fellow, a client services and outreach fellow for the Polaris project, which is now called Polaris. And it's a amazing national anti-human trafficking organization out of Washington, D.C. And I I applied as a fellow and I was able to work directly with clients this one particular summer. I wanted at this point to see, you know, prior to this, I had mostly been doing po- uh, policy research and I had published my own policy memo um, on the sexual exploitation of homeless youth. And I was interviewing folks in the field and I had started a a radio show on human trafficking as well. But again, this was very removed from the whole process and I wanted to get closer to it because again, in my mind, what pushes me every day is just remembering, you know, my friend and what she had experienced. And that's really what keeps me going. And so I went through this fellowship program and in addition to working directly with clients, I, they also wanted to make sure that we were trained appropriately on this issue. And this was in 2010. So it was still kind of, this issue was still kind of picking up. Um, people didn't really know too much about it the way that we do now, I think, mm-hmm. um, in space. And so I remember one particular class, which was taught by the CEO of Polaris. His name is Brad Miles, and he's amazing. And it really stuck with me even to this day. And I keep remembering it, especially during the really tough moments. But he said that, especially in the anti-trafficking field, there's this line that we have, and, and it's and you sort of, you measure it based on how close you can get to this issue. And it doesn't matter where you are on this line, whether you work directly with clients or you work in academia, you know, whatever makes you feel comfortable to provide and to give the most impact. And I felt like that gave me the okay to try out where I feel comfortable. And it's okay if I couldn't, you know, handle working directly with clients, because I know other people could and and maybe I wouldn't be able to. So that summer, like I said, I worked directly with clients and I would come home similar to what you experienced. And at the end of the day, and I would just sleep. I would sleep for a very long time. And that was the way that I processed the emotional um, exchanges that we would have with the, the clients. And I realized that as worthwhile as it was to see a client come in after you had been working with them on building their resume and applying for jobs and they get a job as rewarding as that was and seeing their smiles, I felt like I could be more effective if I stepped a little bit further back and could, you know, help build programs, help look at how technology can be used to fight human trafficking. And I've been very fortunate to 
get to that point in my career. And I still have a long ways to go where what I want to achieve. But I think that for me, that's one way that has allowed me to maintain and sustain myself in this movement, because I'm in it for the long haul. There's like I said, there's a, a deeper reason why I'm doing this when it is really difficult. And you're not just dealing with even, you know, the challenges of a, a victim who want, who's on their way to becoming survivor, but it's also the people who are also burned out in the field and they're taking out their emotions on each other. Um, that could be particularly challenging. And so I just wake up every day and especially on those difficult days. And I remember why I'm, I'm doing this. And it also helps to have really great friends and family. And I have a very loving husband who helps keep me sane and reminds me again, why I'm doing this one. Sometimes it is very challenging. I love the way you said vicarious trauma because that's so accurate and we don't often call it what it is, but you really do relive this sometimes with the, as you said, victims on their way to survivors and it can be just completely overwhelming. And I liked what you said too about trying out where the line is because I feel, and maybe this is particular to women, but when we go into a task, especially one where you have so much passion for it and you realize the importance of it, it's so easy for myself anyway to get caught up in doing it perfectly and especially when it's impacting another person. So to give yourself permission to say, hey, what do I do best? Where do I do it best? What is going to work for me? What is going to work for them? And to just you know, be flexible, be like water. I really yeah, love that. I, yeah. I can absolutely re agree and relate to that. And I mean, <laughs> when I was much younger, I would ad I admit that I was not very flexible. Um, and I, I obviously take this issue very seriously, very personally. And so if something didn't go right, or if something doesn't go right, uh, in my mind about how a program should have been executed or how a project should have been executed, because this is someone's life at the end of the this, you know, what I'm working towards, it, it really is hard. It, it's yeah. hard to, to figure that out within yourself sometimes. But then again, that's why leaning on people that love you and you love is really helpful. Amen. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's yeah. go there for a second. So, and I think that's true of all of us. All of us can be inflexible when we're young. It's how we form our identity and make our way into the world. So is there a time you can tell us about a specific time where you let judgment or fear stand in your way, but you eventually broke through that plateau and became even stronger or more effective? I think, honestly, even one my minuscule example that, I, that just sort of comes to my mind as we're talking about this was this fear of you know, am I going to live this life that's worth living? Am I going to be able to leave an impact and help others? And I don't know if fear would be the right way for me to describe it, but it's definitely something that propels me because my parents are immigrants. They came from Argentina and Uruguay. They worked really hard to build a better life for my younger brother and I, and they left their countries because they didn't have the rights that they knew that they deserved. I mean, they lived in gov under government dictatorships where their own lives were at risk. And they were able to come to the United States and they didn't, you know, we, I don't come from money. I don't come from connections. And they made a community for us, which allowed me to then, and my brother to now pursue what we care about. And so my fear is that, you know, I don't want that to go to, I, I want to make them proud and I don't want to 
have their dreams and their desires go to waste, I guess, or, or their legacy. And, and then also I want to have a legacy for my own children or whomever I'm lucky enough to, or fortunate, fortunate enough to impact. And so this fear, um, really came about when I graduated from college. Um, I went to UC Berkeley and I, first of all, couldn't believe that I had gotten in at that point, but I was very lucky to to have gotten to Berkeley because, again, my parents, being immigrants, we didn't really grow up knowing, okay, this is what you should do. You should take the SATs before you apply to college. You should do X, Y, and Z to get ready for college. And so I last minute took the SATs. I bombed them (laughs) and and ended up going to a community college, which was amazing. It changed my life. It was uh, it's called De Anza Community College in Cupertino, California. And that college, that experience opened my eyes to so many things, to just being, what does it mean to be civically engaged and also learn and be inquisitive and just be a citizen of the world. And that's what I say that I felt kind of lucky enough to go to to Berkeley because that wasn't necessarily my path. And I was fortunate to get a full ride into Berkeley, which I never expected to receive and, and it opened up so many opportunities. So by the time I was graduating in 2009 from UC Berkeley, the recession had really hit. And I was at this point, this fear that was going on in my head wasn't just, can I find a job? Because a lot of my, you know, classmates couldn't even get a job at Starbucks, right? Because so many people needed a job at that point. And there's nothing wrong with Starbucks, but it's sort of that idea, right? That you're all competing for a small number of jobs. And so on top of that fear, though, was, am I going to fulfill this legacy? And am I going to be able to have a career that I'm proud of, that I, I wake up to, and I'm excited to go to, and it means something to me, and it means something to community, to the community. That's what the fear I had at that time. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. And to kind of push through it, I had my husband, he was very helpful. And he's like, Maya, just, just go, you know, just see what, what can, can make happen or, or do. And so I did this program called Cal in Sacramento the summer after I graduated. And I went and I was a research fellow at the California Research Bureau. And they knew that I, you know, was interested in the issue of human trafficking. And they said, well, you know, I don't think we have any issues like that to work on, but there's this thing called the sexual exploitation of homeless youth. Are you interested in exploring that? And I was like, yes, I I don't really know too much about it myself, but this is an issue that sounds like I should definitely explore. And so by doing this research, it opened up so many doors to Alameda County, to, to the amazing people working in Alameda County to fight human trafficking, because what I would later find out was, in fact, this this sexual exploitation of homeless youth was just one form of child sex trafficking in America. And so I connected to this community in Alameda County um, and one particular agency, the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. And so by the time my fellowship was over at the end of the summer, I naively was like, hi, you know, are you are you hiring? You know, is there anything that I can do to help out? And this one DA district attorney was like, yeah, you know, come on, come on by, we'll hire you, just bring your resume. And so I was like, oh my God, this is so easy. I thought this was going to be harder. And I show up, you know, it's two hours away by Metro. I took the Metro. Uh, I didn't have a car <laughs> and I, you know, it was bright eyed, bushy tailed, knocked on, on the door with my resume in hand. And, um, and this DA wasn't there. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. I'll just call her like, Hey, you know, 
just letting you know, I'm, I'm right outside. I'm ready to do this, to have this interview. And she's like, oh, I totally forgot. But you know what? We don't have a job right now. Good luck. And oh. you know, that was it. That oh was my like, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and nothing, you know, it wasn't that they were mean or anything, but no. that's life, right? You know, and so. That's a harsh <laughs> lesson at a young age. <laughs> so I had a, a Charlie Brown moment, Kristen. Like this, uh, I'm not going to lie. That's very, very much. I could hear the music right now playing. Right, I can too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember walking down the hallway and I had my moment and then I collected myself just, you know, breathing, right? right. Collecting myself. And I was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to happen, but a year from now I'm going to work here. And so I went on my way. I just, I didn't know. I just sort of said it out loud to the universe. And I was fortunate to get a job at a startup um, soon after. So I worked at a startup by day. And, and then I started my own radio show on human trafficking as well. Not just to learn about the issue, because again, I was still personally learning about it in a more, in, I guess, in a more intellectual way, but to really connect to the people in the field, because I wanted, in a way, it's an informational interview, right? Sure. So it's my excuse to get to know people. And so I, I did that. I also, you know, volunteered and was an intern for other anti-trafficking organizations. And I helped gain, gather signatures for this uh, initiative called Prop 35, which was this huge human trafficking initiative. That one of 35. I worked yeah. on that. I volunteered on that. Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. So this, I, I was, uh, I worked, tried to gather signatures for the first time before it actually officially got on the ballot. So, um, you know, just learning about the political process in that way, how to, to move, um, kind of change in that way. And just for those who don't know about Prop 35, it's this really big anti-trafficking initiative that passed by, I think, 81% of the vote, which never really happens in a California Never. initiative. So it's pretty significant. And we love our props in California. It's not the first prop we've done. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's another story though. Okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> another podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then during this time, I also uh, went to DC for the fellowship at Polaris. And throughout this time, I maintained communication with the district attorney's office because I just wanted, I knew I believed in them. I knew what they were doing at this point. They were, part of this huge, amazing movement in Alameda County that really was kicking butt and making this issue of child sex trafficking of children an issue to care about. And so I wanted to be part of that community and that effort. So eventually, um, I remember one day this DA called me and I think we have an opportunity for you, but you need to find a grant to fund yourself. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll take it. So that day I found a grant, we applied and a year later I showed up and I was coordinating this anti-human trafficking program. Wow. I mean, that's how I sort of handled the fear of not having a career or, or a life that meant something to me and that did something good. And I just sort of pushed through and I was able to do that with the support and the love from people around me. Hey, Moving Forward listeners. If you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. There's so many things about that story that you really hit on. One was not having a preset plan. I think a lot of us go through life, myself included, with I'm going to do A, and then when A happens, I'm going to do B, and when B happens, I'm going to do C. And you were gutsy enough to say, well, 
I don't know, but I'm going to be in action anyway. And that's, you know, one of my favorite sayings is what you want is always outside of your comfort zone. And even though you weren't sure where you were going or what you were doing, you were willing to show up. You were willing to take that two-hour metro ride. You were willing to be in action. No, You were willing to say to the universe, you know what, not now. I get that. But someday, yes, I will. Make it happen. So all of those are just really courageous actions. Um, and you, and in the end, you're doing what you want. You're making a difference. You're living your passion. And I think that's the lesson that can be learned from all of that. One thing I wanted to go back and touch on, you had mentioned you are the daughter of immigrants. And it sounds like gratitude has played a huge role in your life, just knowing that you are lucky to be where you are and you're fortunate enough to be able to, you know, take those risks and be in action. So, you and I had talked previously about your multiple identities. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Just some background. As I, I we sort of talked about before, um, I identify as a, a Jewish Latina, but getting to that point in my life wasn't so straightforward as I'm sure all of us experience, right, with our own identities. But however, this idea or this identity of mine or these multiple identities of mine are very important to me. They mean something a lot to me because it dictates who I am in the world and how I show up for other people and the issues that I care about. Because for me, being a Jewish Latina, there's a lot of history of diaspora. There's a lot of history of, you know, fighting for human rights and fighting for humanity in the community. And that not only shows up in like I mentioned before, my parents being immigrants and having to leave their countries because of dictatorships. But as I kind of reflect back, I think had influenced my desire to be creative and my desire to be inquisitive and to learn about the history of, of slavery in America and the world, the history of the Holocaust and why that is important to me and who I am and how I am as an ally for others as well. But again, to get there was really difficult. So when I was younger, we lived in a very homogenous community, very definitely, you know, privilege was there um, in the sense that we were living in a very middle class community, which a lot of people, which is, I'm looking back, I'm very fortunate and, and grateful to have had that experience because I know a lot of people haven't. And that obviously opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And I take those opportunities seriously. But when I was growing up, I, as a child, I was embarrassed that my parents had accents. I was embarrassed and frustrated that, you know, why didn't they tell me to take the SATs until the day before? How come they didn't know, like, why didn't they show up to certain things that, you know, other quote unquote American parents showed up for? But that's because they were working hard and they were trying to make sure that, you know, my brother and I had enough. And I had a lot of resistance to what it meant being even a woman, because I would... I was trying to emulate what I thought American society was telling me to do. And so I would read these magazines, right, as a little girl. And you're like, oh, I don't feel like I match up to that. And I don't even feel like I think the same way that this magazine is telling me to think. And there was a lot of conflict. So I was very, um, you know, resistant to, uh, as a young child, like uh, what it meant to be a woman. I was resistant to anything that wasn't sort of this quote-unquote white American English-speaking society in this role and also being Jewish. That was very different in my community. And I would have friends that would wear the cross and I would think in my head, well, why don't I just wear that? It looks cool. And I didn't understand what that meant. And mm. so I was very much, try I was resisting who I 
ended up becoming, which I'm very grateful and excited and happy to be who I am today, of course. But um, I think all of this changed when I got to college, when I particularly got to dance at college, because that's, again, dancing in particular as a, as a community college is a very active social justice campus. And I never expected I would have received such a great experience from a two-year institution, but it was, it changed my life for the better. I mean, I also met my husband in community college, so that obviously makes me very happy. But, (laughs) but, you know, meeting my husband, when I met him, I met him because I wanted to join his Latino Sonidos club. And he was the president. He started this club on campus and I wanted to identify as a Latina. What does it mean? What did it mean for me at that point? Because there's being a Latino is not just, you know, one thing. It's it's this whole spectrum and yeah. same for all these other identities, right? Yeah. So I began to really explore that. I had great friends and professors that I still cherish and talk to today that came to our wedding. Um, and they helped me challenge these stereotypes. They cha- helped me challenge my own privilege. And what did that mean? How did I, what did that mean as for me to become an ally for others who didn't have the type of privilege I had. How do I check my privilege at the end of the day or at the door? Um, these things I constantly think about, especially in this movement of, of human trafficking, because there's so many levels of privilege and power and multiple identities that are going on in this issue and why certain, th- certain um, aspects of this issue draw more attention to other than others whether it's at the, you know, policy level or the funding level or just the services level. And for me, I'm constantly in my head thinking, all right, what about what about young boys who are being, you know, trafficked? What about, you know, kids of color that are being trafficked? Why are they being treated like this versus, you know, if a a a young white girl was being trafficked? And um, and these are things that I constantly think about. And and that's because as a Jewish Latina, it's an issue. It's just what I care about and it's how I see the world. And I'm so happy that I uh, have gotten to this point where at least I've been able to challenge those assumptions that I had when I was a young child, because I feel like I can be much more impactful and um, more introspective as well on who I am and how I show up. Well, I think in addition to being introspective, that cultivates a great sense of empathy on your part and allows you to move forward and again be in action. That's what really strikes me. And I love the ability to shift your perspective. I know people, you know, take classes and they work very diligently at being able to see beyond their own perspective and their own sense of privilege and entitlement. And it sounds like that is something that came very naturally to you as well as this attitude of gratitude, not to be too cheesy, but, you know, it really, that's what strikes me is what has carried you through all of this. You know that you are fortunate and you know, because of what you've been given, you have a lot to uh, play forward. So, well, I, I don't know if it, to be honest, I don't know if it's come naturally to me in the sense, because all these, you know, years and years of privilege and oppression and how that's structured in our society kind of shows up and, and you're kind of, you know, when you're younger, you're like, oh, you know, where where am I on this side of the line? I think that, like, I have such great friends and family that constantly challenge. We challenge each other. And we talk about these issues all the time because it's it's very important to me and to us. And so it's not I, I would I would definitely say it's not easy. And every day I 
I am constantly reminded of, you know, where am I and what impact can I have? Um, you know, because also, it, again, in the anti-trafficking movement, I'm, I've sort of thought like, okay, on the one hand, I want to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. But at the same time, what type, what type of privilege does that mean? Or am I putting anything on that person who doesn't have a voice when they have their own path or their own way of, of speaking out for themselves rather than me having to do it for them? So I think that that doesn't, I don't know if that makes sense, actually. No, but. it does. And that's a tough line to walk because you don't want to be imposing upon them. Yeah. You want them to find their own way. But it's a middle ground because you also don't want them to be hurt e- any further either. I right. Yeah. And so just constantly checking that, I think, is something that's very important to me. Yeah. So it sounds like you do a lot well just because of the attitude you have as you move through life. But I want to ask, what do you do best? And this is you know, maybe a an inch wide and a mile deep, it's where you get to brag. I like being a, you know, I'm very boisterous, but yeah. I, I get a little bit shy about this. But um, I'm very proud of the fact that I get it done. Um, there you go. It's something that, <laughs> it's just something that, again, I, I think the, the legacy or the history that my parents gave me as immigrants, I mean, I saw them get it done. And just being, you know, they didn't know the language and yet they now are, have a very successful life for themselves. And I'm just so impressed by that. So I think that that's translated into a skill set that I am very uh, grateful to have learned from them. And so, for example, this particular program that I, I used to coordinate, which I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity, I was able to work under an amazing leader, District Attorney Nancy O'Malley, and work with amazing people in the field, both inside the office and outside of the office. And I'm I'm just looking back and I'm like, wow, I don't know if I really knew what I was getting myself into. And it was so worthwhile because I felt like I did make such an impact. But I showed up and at that point in 2010, it was largely a prosecution unit. And so um, and that's something that this DA's office does very well. It prosecutes human traffickers. And recently in, I think, like a 2012 study by uh, California Attorney General Kamala Harris, they found that the Alameda County District Attorney's Office had actually prosecuted 46% of all human trafficking cases in the state with like an 80-some percent uh, conviction rate, which is huge. Like, that's very much unheard of. So wow, I'm you should see my very honored. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very honored to have had the privilege to uh, to have worked for her and and with the the DA's office. And so I show up, and they were largely, you know, a prosecution unit. And with this grant that uh, we found, I was tasked with how do we develop uh, and expand this prosecution unit into a five point strategy to combat human trafficking, and that's training law enforcement, coordinating services for victims so they don't keep falling through the cracks, um, working on policy so that, you know, we can hold traffickers accountable and we can support victims, um, and obviously prosecuting human traffickers. And then the community engagement piece, how do you engage the community? And this sort of goes back to that one event that I felt really opened up my eyes uh, about human trafficking and seeing the response from the audience. And so, um, you know, four years later, uh, in 2014, I, you know, by the time I, I did leave, I'm so proud that I was able to have helped in some form or fashion develop it into a, a nationally recognized award-winning program. So one of the programs that I'm, I'm particularly excited or happy to have worked on was this or, program called Safety Net, which 
is what it kind of sounds like. It's a safety net for um, kids who are either at risk or involved in child sex trafficking. And up until we had sort of thought to develop this particular program, a lot of the kids would come in through the system, either being arrested or or picked up um, and brought in on safety holds, or they would go to a group home and then they would just sort of fall through the cracks. They would run away. They would be released to their trafficker who would then continue to exploit them. And these kids would continuously be exploited and with like no end in sight. And this was so frustrating. And no one, none of the agencies that worked with these kids would talk to each other at this point. And so we developed SafetyNet in, I think, officially 2011. And we brought together, you know, eventually brought together about 14 plus different agencies in the county of Alameda who worked with these kids like you know, social services and probation and the DA's office. And we had the public defender's office, which is really rare to have those two agencies together right. and service providers and schools. And we would sit down every Tuesday and we still do, or they still do. I'm just not there anymore. Uh, and <laughs> they sit down every Tuesday with these uh, amazing organizations and they talk about what are the immediate safety needs? What do we need to do to figure out their placement so that they don't get sent to the wrong place. And one particular story um, kind of, I think, illustrates the power of safety net. There's this particular client and they were going to, uh, I think probation was looking to place her, uh, this client in the home of their mother, which, you know, of course they want to reunite a child with their parent. And, um, and however, someone at safety net said, no, wait a minute, there's something going on with the, the mother's home. We think that there's um, there the exploiter lives there, and um, fortunately the the judge was in in girls court because there's a specific courtroom for uh, girls who are at risk, um, especially for child sex trafficking. They said, okay, look, we need to look into this home, and this was this only would have this discussion only would have happened because we had safety net, and so the probation officer went to the home, and sure enough. There were multiple exploiters, multiple women, and multiple kids um, of the, the women living there. And we were able to stop uh, that placement from happening and find a much more suitable placement for this minor. That's amazing. And I know just from volunteering in the issue area that having everyone speak to each other, it's almost like being an event. Oh, it changes it. Yeah. It's it almost, changes the game. Yeah. It's almost and it's impossible. so simple. It is in theory. It's one of those things that's simple in, in theory, but then not in practice. And the fact that you did that, that's really, wow. Kudos. And then I would say that another thing that I really, and I'm actually getting really excited about this because I am very nostalgic for um, for this program. It's called Heat Watch, Human Exploitation and Trafficking. That's the, the program that is under the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. Very nostalgic for it, and it always will be in my heart um, because I believe in them so much. But I'm really glad and, and grateful to have gotten to work on um, the community aspect piece, the community engagement, because uh, DA O'Malley is very forward thinking. She, the fact that she allowed, you know, me to kind of bring forth these kind of crazy ideas for a government office and for an elected, you know, officials office, and she's like, okay, let's try this out. Let's see if this works. Is pretty amazing, and it sort of shows who she is as a leader in the community. But um, you know, I, I remember going up to her and I was like, hey, you know, I, I'm noticing that there's a gap in in how we train, yeah, you know, our kids because and in high school and middle school. And they're the ones who are really being targeted by traffickers. Yeah. And so what do you think about having us develop a graphic novel series? And she's like, OK, let's try it. And so we were able to, you know, I was able to work on 
um, with a group of people who in our office who are so brilliant and smart and creative. Um, and we developed, uh, you know, a series on about child sex trafficking in America. And we also worked with Clear Channel Outdoors to launch a billboard campaign to challenge how the community looks and talks about looks at and talks about child sex trafficking. You know, it's not these aren't prostitutes. They're victims right. of human trafficking. Right. So, First, yes, exactly. So just changing that dialogue. And and then lastly, starting the Heat Watch radio series, which is on iTunes, um, I'm really grateful for because, again, it was not just human trafficking 101. It was going deeper. It was about how do we really talk about and look at the particularities of this issue because it's very complex. And I felt like our in our for our office to continue to be forward thinking, we needed to go into this issue deeper and not just continually, you know, have these sort of basic 101 right. information because eventually people know about human trafficking. They want to know more and what can they do? Yeah. And I, I was really grateful that I got to, to spearhead and run that. The phrase that comes to mind when you speak of all this is just no safety net. You're walking the tightrope. There's nothing below you because you know you need to get to the other side and you really don't have time to put that in play. And just being willing to shift your perspective, try things out without worrying whether or not they're perfect and being in action the whole time. And I can only imagine how many people you have impacted and lives you have saved doing the work that you do. Um, going, It is really scary. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I definitely have good point fallen too. from that safety net or that yeah. safety I mean, the reason we all hesitate and the reason we all want it to be perfect, no matter if we're, you know, in human trafficking or law or working at Starbucks is because it is terrifying. <laughs> but the fact that you do it anyway, despite that it's terrifying, is the definition of courage. So I want to talk to you a little bit digging deeper. Um, were you spiritual as a child? So it's also interesting that you say that, too, because this whole idea of being that Jewish Latina, right, that comes into play. And I think also the stereotype of when people think of Latinos are like, oh, aren't all Latinos Catholic? And no, we're we're very diverse. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, you know, the Jewish uh, culture was very big in my house growing up. Both of my parents, when I was much younger, were reformed Jews and um and so I definitely, you know, we had Shabbat and, you know, we celebrated Hanukkah and, and whatnot. Um, however, I had an experience that sort of put me off from religion in general, not not Judaism necessarily, but just religion in general. Okay. And then that kind of pushed me further to say, OK, well, if I first of all, do I believe in anything? And if I do believe in something, what is it? And is it going to be an organized religion? And so I got into Buddhist chanting and I went to various different uh, denominations or services from different de denominations. And that really opened up my eyes. And, um, and yet I was still, you know, I still, to this day, I'm still kind of not quite sure, but I do feel like there is something greater than me out there. And that's actually yeah. what has allowed me to do the work that I do as well. Um, I don't want to sort of deny that, um, and it keeps me doing the the work, especially on difficult days. But um, to be honest, I'm still exploring. And I think that that's perfectly fine. That's not something that I am scared of to admit. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm still thinking about this question. 
I think that's the perfect answer because I think, you know, some of us see spirituality or religion as a, a destination we need to get to immediately. And if there is any questioning, then you are wrong. And, you know, I know in my household, religion was oftentimes used as a weapon against us. But the truth to me is that we're all seekers and we're not done until we're done. So that's a lifetime, I like that. Yeah, it's a yeah. lifetime process to me. So and it's always evolving and always changing. And I think you only lose or disconnect when you stop questioning. So well, for me, and I think this is one of the benefits of when religion is very powerful is it, it, I'm more interested in, in people and what motivates and inspires and moves them to just be the best that they can be. And I feel like many times religion can do that for a lot of folks. And so whatever that means, that seeking that you're talking about, which is really having me think a lot right now is I'm like, I'm seeking to make connections with people and I'm seeking to live a life that I'm proud of. And that's good. And I want to do good at the end of the day. And I think that that's, that could be a very spiritual uh, quest. I think that is the spiritual quest is to connect with one another because we're all from the same source. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Can we talk a little bit just because of my own curiosity? Um, so when you speak of Judaism, I know Judaism is a religion and a culture. Can you talk about that a little bit for our listeners and how that played into how you grew up? Oh, my God. OK, I have to uh, admit that I, I kind of jokingly say and I don't know if this is actually funny for some people, but. I, I feel like I'm like the worst Jew uh, in the sense <laughs> I hear a lot of my Jewish in, that. <laughs> in the sense that if you know you have me if you ask me you know when is this holiday when is that holiday I'm not going to know and in fact my Catholic husband knows Jewish holidays much better than I do <laughs> he will remind me like hey honey it's Rosh Hashanah why are you you know going to work today I was like oh okay okay um, however there is a component of Judaism that for me is more about uh, who the maybe more the culture. Yeah. Um, the ethnic, the ethnicities part of it, which is humanism. There's, I had conversation, I've had conversations with my grandparents who are, they just self-describe themselves as humanistic Jews. And I feel like that like just connects with me and, and makes sense to me so much. And so I would say that I'm a humanistic Jew. That's what I've connected to. And it's sort of looking back and the issues I cared about and what I liked reading and, and learning about were issues of, about humanity and how to just be a better person. And so the distinctions that I've sort of made is that while we did celebrate the high holy, holy days in my home, and while I see my younger brother, who's 10 years younger than me, you know, having a bar mitzvah, which I didn't have my own bat mitzvah, or like wanting to study and live in Israel, which I was very fortunate to go on this one program called Birthright, which, you know, I'm happy to talk about, which was a great experience. But, um, for me, it was just more like Judaism means that I'm a humanistic person and that I care about all faiths and I care about all people. And I, I just care about humanity and I want to live a life that, that means something. And I keep saying that, and I hope that the, I'm not like, you know, hammering the nail too much, but, no. um, it's just, that's what I really feel like I'm guided by. Yeah. And yeah. that's where my faith kind of fits in. I love that. Well, speaking of connection, if our listeners want to learn more about you or follow you, is there a way they can do so on social media? Absolutely. I would be happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. They could find me at um, 
Maya Supak Arteaga, A-R-T-E-A-G-A. And they could also also find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Maya the B with four E's. And I don't know if anyone kind of remembers, I might be dating myself, but there was this like childhood cartoon called Maya the B and it was like a, a B I think from like Germany or something. And so my friends would always tease me about that. So oh, that is my handle. <laughs> I did not know that cartoon. I learned something new. That's wonderful. <laughs> Beautiful. Yep. So connect with me. I want to talk to you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Maya, thank you so much for being here and being such an outstanding example to the community to shift your perspective, be in gratitude, and always be in action. Thank you so much. It was such a, a fun time talking with you, Kristen. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today on Moving Forward. Did you like this podcast? If so, rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks again. Have a great day and satnam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.